I know many of you have NIV Bibles there in the pews, but this is in the ESV. We continue to look at Jesus as the perfect priest. And uh, the scripture here in the book of Hebrews has been talking about how Jesus is superior. He's superior to the angelic beings. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the priests. And now we're going to see how he is the perfect sacrifice in this passage. So this is Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he have said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The word of the Lord. Well, this Tuesday we are in search of the perfect buffalo wing. If such an ideal exists. The perfect buffalo wing. We've been on a quest uh, throughout Hampton Roads, and we've tasted some pretty good wings, but we're still looking for the perfect buffalo wing. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of the word perfect. I think our culture loves perfection. I think it was just recently that Hampton Roads re released their best of the best list. I don't know if you ever look at the best of the best list. And during that, you can find the best of the best in everything. You can find the best crab cake, which they said was the surf rider, which I think is probably accurate. But you can also find the best yoga facility. In fact, you can find the best place, the most perfect place to find a garage door. Mercedes-Benz tells us that it has to be the best or nothing. And Lexus tells us that they're in the relentless pursuit of perfection. Perfection is the standard that we look to in the United States of America. We're all looking for Mr. and Mrs. Perfect. We're all looking to have perfect kids that have perfect grade point averages so they can go to the perfect college. We're consumed with perfect. We want perfect, nothing less. 
But we not only want perfect, we want to be perfect. I think that this picture is no, uh, this concept is no better meted out than the concept of women and body image. Stand, the standard is perfection. But the problem is the standard is harder and harder to obtain. If you were to see the old paintings of the most beautiful woman in the world, Venus de Milo, she was this beautiful, curvaceous woman, ample, beautiful woman. But the standard has changed again and again. Now she has to be taller and thinner. The average model is 5 foot 10 inches, 110 pounds. While the average female is 5 foot 4 inches, 142 pounds. Heck, even 50 years ago, it was Mae West and Marilyn Monroe. Remember them? Beautiful, shapely figures. In today's standard of perfection, they would be considered overweight. People magazine said that 80% of women reported that images of women on TV and in movies, fashion magazines, and advertising make them feel insecure about their looks. In addition, the poll indicated that women are made to feel so insecure that they are willing to try diets that pose a health risk, 34%, go under the knife, 34%, and 93% indicated they had made various and repeated attempts to lose weight to measure up to those images. What's fascinating and disturbing is when you ask the Hollywood beauties if they feel that they are measure up the standard upon which everything else is measured, they're not satisfied either. I want to subject, uh, suggest to you that this obsession with perfection actually speaks of a deeper reality. That really what's going on here in the hearts of women and men is this question, how can I be presentable before God? Remember Adam and Eve sitting in the garden and what was the first thing they did? They sewed clothing for themselves so they could somehow find a way to be presentable toward God. For God is perfect. In Him there is no shadow. He is true righteousness and holiness. And so the greatest fear of the human heart is that God will not find me perfect. And so we are engaged in a quest to work out perfection from the outside in. Now why from the outside in? Because we know we can't fix the inside. Let me ask you, which is easier, to lose weight or to stop hating my brother? Which is easier, to work out or to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? See, we can't fix the heart. We can't right the wrongs of the past, fix the scars. So we must focus on the outside. Find it interesting, we have a magazine out called Shape Magazine, devoted to the shape of the human body. Where's the magazine called Heart Magazine? Devoted to the beauty of the heart. It's not out there. You won't find it. So men work themselves to death, and women starve themselves to death in this never-ending quest for perfection. But what if we could become perfect? What if there was a way to fix the inside of the human body, the heart? What if we could solve this problem of being presentable before God? I think many of our rampant obsessions would end. This never-ending quest for all the wrong reasons. We would stop having to be someone that we're not. We could live with peace and joy before God. We could find some sort of peace when we looked in the mirror and we saw ourselves. 
Because the problem would be fixed. Well, what I'm happy to tell with you today is that a way of perfection has occurred. A way has occurred to bring perfection to the human heart and make it presentable to God. What is that way? It's not a method, not a technique. It's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Our obsession is to try to bring perfection from the outside in, but only Christ has power to bring perfection from the inside out. We're going to talk about three things. The first thing we're going to talk about is our perfection, our quest for perfection, which God rejects. And then we're going to talk about the perfection that Christ achieves. And then we're finally going to talk about the perfection we received. So our perfection that God rejects, Christ's perfection that He achieves, and Christ's perfection that we receive. Number one, the perfection that God rejects. Now, if you remember in this particular church, we have a church that's wavering in their faith. They're being persecuted. They're losing their jobs and homes, and they're a small church just like us. And they're wondering, did we choose the wrong path in following Jesus? Maybe we should go back. It's clear there's some Hebrew origins in this church. Maybe we should go back to the way that things were before. See, the problem with Christianity is there isn't a lot to it. No elaborate rituals, no things you have to do. Worship is inward and spiritual. And so they were wondering, maybe there's something we need to do. And if we go back to these sacrifices, if we start performing our own sacrifices here, we can provide some perfection in this equation. And so they're tempted to go back. And so in 10.1, the writer reminds them that the law has but, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, the writer is saying that the law is a shadow. It's not meant to be the true thing. It's a shadow of the good things that are to come. Therefore, because it's a shadow, it can't provide perfection. Can't perfect the people. The word there, making perfect, is teleosai, which means to complete, to fulfill, to make a person whole. The writer is saying that these rituals here, this law, this shadow, these practices, they can't make a person whole. So that's the reason they have to be offered again and again and again. Why? Because the consciousness of sin is never removed. For if the people were cleansed, why would they have to go back again and again and again? See, this thing going on and on and on, it's not only because God has prescribed it. God has prescribed it for the very reason that it's not effective. It doesn't cleanse the human heart. That word there, katharizo, is the word for cleansing. It's where we get the word catharsis. Very familiar with that term. It also means to purge. When I was a, I used to scuba dive some. Whenever you have a, a regulator and you get water in the valve, you can't breathe. So what do you do? You hit the purge valve. And it shoots a stream of air through the regulator that clears everything out. So it's fresh and you can breathe. He's saying that there was no purge valve to this law. It wouldn't cleanse the human heart and make it fresh and free before God. 
So the Day of Atonement was not a day of cleansing, it was a day of reminding. One of the things you may not know about the Day of Atonement, that time when they would actually bring in the sacrifice, the lamb to lay on it the sins of the people, was it was not a day of celebration. The Day of Atonement was a day of fasting and confession. Listen to what God says in Leviticus 23. Now, on the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves, meaning you shall humiliate yourselves in your heart and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Whoever is not afflicted, humiliated on that very day shall be cut off from his people. God wanted to use that day to help people to recognize their sin. It wasn't a day of celebration. Why did it not cleanse the human heart? Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, this ancient Hebrew society that we're talking about here, it's centered all around religion and the temple and being holy in your sacrifices and the way you lived your life. Kind of like the center of our world is materialism and beauty. The center of that world was religion. And so the highest person on the totem pole, the most coveted person that you wanted to be was the high priest. And below that were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. All the prestige and the power was, was with them. And the goal was to be like them, to be holy and pious. But even the best of the best could never attain a cleansing of the human heart. Every religious procedure was simply another reminder that they were not good enough. You may not know this name, but if you read People magazine, you do. Her name is Heidi Montag. She's a 20-something reality TV star that was on the hills who has an obsession with plastic surgery. That's what she's most famous for. Heidi's not alone. Since 1997, plastic surgery procedures have risen in the United States to the tune of 450%. Well, Heidi Montag is most known by having 10 plastic surgery procedures in one day, which raised eyebrows even in Hollywood. When asked about this, Montag said, for the past three years, I've thought about what to have done. I'm beyond obsessed. I was made fun of when I was younger, and so I had insecurities, especially after I moved to L.A. People said I had a Jay Leno chin. They'd circle it on blogs and say nasty things. It bothered me. And when I watched myself on the hills, my ears would be sticking out like Dumbo. I just wanted to feel more confident and look in the mirror and be like, whoa, that's me. When Montag's total transformation began, the starlet chronicled every painful moment of recovery and her journey to become the best me. See, Montag's route to perfection was through the knife. Every cut, a sacrifice to become the perfect me. But surgeons tell us that there are consequences to what Montag has done, that these procedures over years will take their toll. And along will come age and the wrinkles. And what will happen to Heidi Montag when Hollywood finally overlooks her for the next beauty? Well, it's easy to look down on Montag, isn't it? And because she wears her insecurities so clearly on her sleeve. But what about us? What about you and me? How do you measure your perfection? 
Maybe you measure it by what you see in the mirror. My nose is too big. My lashes are too short. My skin is too wrinkled. And your bank account is constantly taxed by having to keep up with the latest fashions and makeup. And frankly, you know more about Jennifer Aniston's life than you do even your own. And you never quite measure up. There's a sense of self-loathing. Maybe you measure your perfection by playing the big game of Monopoly. The game is to acquire more, work harder, climb the corporate ladder faster, get that right neighborhood, and get that right car, and get that right watch, but you never quite measure up. Because all of our attempts at perfection are always skin deep. And the truth of the matter is they've been rejected by God. For man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so, what must we do? We must stop the madness. Stop trying to perfect ourselves. Stop being like the Israelites in this endless cycle that leads to nowhere. We have to get off this treadmill of perfection. Otherwise, we'll end up being like those lemmings that just go right off the cliff. There has to be another answer. Our obsession is to try to bring perfection from the outside in. But only Christ has the power to bring perfection from the inside out. This brings me to my second point, the perfection that Christ achieves. Notice how we turn the corner in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. See, the reason these sacrifices didn't work is because God didn't desire them. They brought no pleasure to God. They accomplished nothing because they were not God's method of perfection in the first place. But Christ goes on to say, but a body you have prepared for me. See, we see the truth of the gospel in this, that Jesus Christ was made flesh, God and man, just like you and me. Skin and bone, muscle and tissue, a body you have prepared for me. I think of Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac turns to his father and says, where will the sacrifice come from? And Abraham says to his son, God himself will provide the lamb. But a body you have prepared for me. Isn't it interesting that man brings his own sacrifice that are rejected by God, but God brings his own sacrifice that is accepted by him. Who is this sacrifice? His name is Jesus Christ. And when Christ's body was prepared and he came into the world, what did he say? Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. See, Jesus not only was a perfect sacrifice, he was a willing sacrifice. The one who was willing to embrace God's plan. See, God was asking the question, where is the willing sacrifice throughout the entire earth? Where is one? And it says that he was appalled that no one would work salvation for him. But then one came who would bow to the will of God. Jesus who said, I have come to do your will. But what was God's will? Isaiah 53 puts it this way. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him 
and cause him to suffer. And through, the, and through him, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. The sixth chapter of John puts it this way. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. God demands not only a perfect sacrifice, but a willing sacrifice. And man's motives are never perfect. Isaiah 29, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is but only rules taught by men. See, goats and bulls aren't willing sacrifices. They lay down their lives through struggle. But Christ lays down his life willingly. And so in this perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we see the great reversal. That we who are far off have been brought near. Yet him who was near have been pushed far off. That Jesus Christ, though he was the beloved son, was made a criminal. And we, though we were criminals, were made beloved sons. We who were rejected were made acceptable, while Christ who was acceptable was rejected. Now we can see why the old system was abolished. Because there was no need for it anymore. The old is gone, the new has come. A new way to be right with God. The only way. The official way. So this one sacrifice has come. That's acceptable for God. It's made on behalf of God for us. It has the ability to cleanse our heart. With an alien perfection. That from outside. From Christ. This is the answer to God's promise. 500 years before in verse 16, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What God has promised, He has done. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. See, all of our hopes and dreams for perfection can be realized in Christ. So the question I have for you is, have you appropriated this sacrifice which was for you? The gift of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so we must embrace His sacrifice and reject our own. Stop running after the useless things that can never cleanse the conscience. It's easy to get caught up in this circle. It's easy even to make church into some sort of religious ritual. To turn it into an Old Testament ritual. You can come to church and you can check your box can go ahead and help out in the nursery and you can check your box. You can make your sacrifice to God, write your check, and you can check the box. And you can try to make perfection from the outside in. But the heart of the New Testament church is not the sacrifice you can give, but the sacrifice that Christ gives you. So have you embraced the sacrifice? Have you set all of your hopes on Jesus Christ. You know, you can spend 40 years in the church and never set all of your hope on Jesus Christ. In John 6, they asked Jesus the most important question. What must, regarding salvation, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. So make a decision to accept the Catharizzo of God it's only then that you can get off the treadmill and into the family.
That brings me to my final point, this perfection that we receive. I want to talk about it a little bit more. Look at verse uh, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, if this is true, if the people reading this passage have been cleansed by God, why are they even tempted to go back? You know, in many ways, I'm not telling a lot of people in the pews right now anything new, am I? You've heard this before, and yet we have our doubts, don't we? We're tempted to go back to this treadmill of sacrifices. What's going on? Well, first, we can take confidence in this fact, that God's work in Christ has been completed. How do we know that? Because He sat down. Jesus is done. His work is done. The old system has been abolished. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Because by a single offering, He has perfected for them all those who are being sanctified. Now this is the crux of the matter right here. In a single offering, He has perfected those. That's in the Greek, the, the perfect tense. What that means is it's something that's already occurred and that will continue on forever. The perfection that God has wrought in the human heart is something that has already occurred for you if you believe in Christ and continues on forever. But notice that it says it has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, what is going on is that Christ has changed the human heart. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. But he has not perfected the outer part of us, has he? That our flesh is still broken. Our mind is still fallen. Our will and our emotions still tainted by sin. So what we see is that a process has begun that has started on the inside, that is flowing to the outside, yet has not been made fully manifest. This is what Paul said when he talked about this agony of inside being cleansed, yet on the outside being still work to be done. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, here's the challenge. I can tell you all of these things. I can swear to you that they're true, but I can't show you. I can't show you the human heart. I can't show you your pedigree in heaven as sons and daughters of God. The reality is from time to time, I myself, like you, act inconsistently with the person that I am. And so I must acknowledge that a transformation has begun in me, but it's not complete. The life we are to live, my friends, in this age is a life that is to be lived by faith. For God has perfected us, but He is in the process of sanctifying us. It is a process. And during this time on planet Earth, the world will come against you. If you notice, Christ is waiting for His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. 
See, the enemies are still out there. The spiritual adversary of, of God, of Christ, Satan, rails against us, seeking to steal the joy of our, of our salvation, to inject seeds of doubt into our mind. No, God hasn't changed your heart. No, you're not presentable to Him. You need to do this and this and this and this and don't ever stop because you don't know if God really loves you. And so we groan in the reality of this world while we wait for the perfection of our bodies. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 puts it this way. Now we know that in the earthly if this earthly tent we live in, our body is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so while we live on planet Earth, we live in between two worlds. You know, in the world of nature, there's some unbelievable animals out there. But one that is one of the most fascinating to me is the caterpillar. Fascinating if you take a microscope or a magnifying glass and you look at a caterpillar. In particular, because of the transformation that occurs from a caterpillar to a butterfly. See, the reality is the caterpillar is a larval form of the member of the order Lepidoptera. Bet you didn't know that which is the insect order comprising butterflies and moths. See, if you were to look at a caterpillar and a butterfly, and I remember as, no, I don't remember as a kid, but kids do this, you go, there's no way. But if genetically you look at a caterpillar and a butterfly, you will discover that they are the exact same creature. They're just at a different stage. So what does the caterpillar do to move into being a butterfly? It goes through a series of molts. Each stage shedding its skin, being transformed more and more into the likeness, being made ready until finally it goes to a, an intermediate stage which is called an instar. And in this instar stage, the final stage, this caterpillar is transformed and emerges from the chrysalis into a butterfly. When was it a butterfly? It's always been a butterfly. Not just when it burst forth from the chrysalis, from the beginning, from its birth. And in the same way, if you believe in Christ, God has transformed your heart. When did you become a saint? The moment you were reborn. And yet you and I must go through a series of molds. Shame, uh, painful shedding of the skin as the inner more and more takes possession of the outer until we are finally transformed on the resurrection day. So my final encouragement and exhortation to you is to live by faith in what is true. Don't look back. Don't go back. Remember the endless treadmill that you used to be on, that you're tempted to go back to. Whether it's beauty, or fame, or fortune, or money, or wisdom, or knowledge, or who knows what. You'll never get there. But rather to remember what Christ has achieved. 
How his sacrifice was recognized. And to set our hope fully on Christ. Understand that this is a process in this world, my friends. It's painful. It's difficult. But the one thing that we can bank on is when we look into the heavens, we do not see a vengeful judge looking down upon us, but the very eyes of our Father who longs for us to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling and to be with Him. You know, there is one thing that we can do in this world. Something interesting about the caterpillar. You know what the caterpillar constantly does? It eats. It's a pest in many agrarian societies because the thing won't stop eating. Because it's in the process of growing into what it needs to become. So it eats and it eats and it eats. See, salvation has been accomplished by the Lord. God's process of transforming us into the heavenly beings that we're meant to be is a process of the Lord. But we get to participate in it. It's called sanctification. That we are partners in Christ as He is changing us, allowing us to participate in this beautiful work of metamorphosis of the human life. God gives us means of grace. You know what this church is? It's just a big cafeteria. A big place where you can come and eat. Do you know what fellowship and community is? It's a restaurant. It's a banquet hall. Where we can commiserate with one another. We can help feed one another. Where we can help run together. And remember what Christ has done. What's adult education? It's just a cafeteria. That's what it is. God wants us to experience more and more of the heavenly reality right here, right now. So are we eating? Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Our obsession is to try to bring perfection from the outside in. But the glory of the gospel that only Christ has the power to bring perfection from the inside out. Let's pray.